from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Danny Wisentowski. Before we get to today's topics, we have two pieces of exciting news. The first is that we resume a five-day-a-week broadcast schedule starting Monday. The second is that we've selected a new host for this show. Her name is Elaine Shaw. Elaine brings more than a decade of experience in journalism and community engagement. She's been a producer for Southern California Public Radio and 9PBS here in St. Louis. She created critical content for the Ferguson Commission's report, Forward Through Ferguson, A Path Toward Racial Equity, and she later worked on that organization's education initiatives. More recently, she served as senior manager for external communications at Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Missouri, and she is the co-editor of the forthcoming Humans of St. Louis book. We're tremendously excited about Elaine becoming host of this show. She starts on November 7th and will begin hosting the show later this fall. To read more about this announcement, visit stlpr.org host. And now to today's show. Just four miles from downtown St. Louis is one of this country's great parks. Yes, Forest Park is great, but we're talking now about Tower Grove Park. The park is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year, and for more, here's producer Alex Hoyer. A new coffee table book by local author Amanda Doyle is richly illustrated. It delves into Tower Grove Park's history and shares the stories of the people, plants, and buildings who have made the 276 acres what it is today. The book is called Tower Grove Park, Common Ground and Grateful Shade Since 1872. Amanda Doyle joined me to talk about it, and we didn't start the conversation with the park's founding, but with how the beginning of another St. Louis institution, the Missouri Botanical Garden, founded 12 years earlier, helped set the stage for the park. People may know that Henry Shaw, who was the benefactor, creator, visionary of the Botanical Garden, also was all of those things for Tower Grove Park. And from the beginning of his time as a philanthropist in St. Louis, he had these twin institutions in mind, really. And he always saw them as paired, even though the garden came uh, 12 years prior to the opening of the park. So he set out the park as a place to be um, a, a respite from the city of what people saw cities becoming. You know, this was after a period of heavy industrialization. And so there was a great concern that people would be trapped in these dirty, noisy, crowded places. There was some truth to that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, St. Louis was a dirty, crowded, noisy place, as many successful and on the on the up and up cities were. And so the park was designed to be um, a getaway from all of that, an oasis. And he, after the garden was open and rolling, he turned his attention to the park, which he created on land that he owned um, right adjacent to the garden. So Henry Shaw, uh, he arrived in 1819 uh, by riverboat. He was a successful businessman. He ran a hardware business, and this was a time of great growth in the city. Uh, When he started envisioning the Missouri Botanical Garden and Tower Grove Park, where was he forming that vision from? So Shaw came from a pastoral background. He grew up in um, sort of a rural uh, area of England, and 
he came here as a, he was 19 years old when he arrived in 1819 in the United States. And so he came as this sort of very ambitious young man and really went all out in his business career. But when he decided he was done with that at the age of at the ripe age of 39, he thought he had made every dollar in the world he could ever possibly need. So then he spent a lot of time traveling. And he returned to England, and he traveled elsewhere in Europe and the rest of the world. And he saw these um, gardens of different kinds, public gardens, private gardens. Um, a lot of them are called pleasure gardens, which sounds a little saucy in 2022, but at the <laughs> time just meant sort of these really lush escapes from the world. And he wanted that for St. Louis. He um, felt that St. Louis, I mean, he was the most zealous transplant we've ever had. You know, <laughs> he thought St. Louis was it. Um, lots of writing at the time referred to St. Louis as the next great future city, future city of the world, all of these things. And he really thought that we needed um, these kind of public institutions to support the kind of community life that he thought would be required for for a great city. What was the area around the Missouri Botanical Garden and what became Tower Grove Park? What was it like when it was being developed and founded? What, what was that area of the city like? Um, there was really no residential there. Um, it was outside of the city limits. Actually, it was not part of the city at the time. There were some light industrial uses in what's now the Shaw neighborhood. Um, I believe there was actually even a, a brick factory close to there, a clay mine. Um, but there were not the neighborhoods that we think of today. The housing came uh, largely after the World's Fair in 1904. So it was a, a carriage ride away, and it was definitely a day trip from St. Louis proper. I found it interesting. I looked up census data, and in 1870, the population of the city of St. Louis was 351,000 people. Today, it's about 305,000 people. And so about 50,000 more people uh, lived in St. Louis uh, when Tower Grove Park opened 150 years ago. And it just goes to show that with this undeveloped land, with what we know now is very developed uh, right. around Tower Grove Park, just how condensed the city's population was at that point. Absolutely. Right. And it became, um, that was another pressure on people, you know, just this crowding and like, where were they, where were people going to go? So I think Shaw looked and saw that obviously the expansion I mean, the, the east is ha has a natural border of the river, so he saw that it was going to be coming west. Um, so his country home, you know, is the one that uh, is now at the garden. But that was his getaway from it all. But I, I think he could see what was coming with the growth of the city. And you mentioned that uh, some of the land of the park wasn't uh, part of the city at that time. The Missouri legislature even had to get involved to pass a resolution um, that would allow it to become part of the city. Right. So Shaw set up the park in a really interesting way. Um, people, listeners may not know that the park is not actually part of the St. Louis City Park system. It exists outside of that, although they do work in conjunction. But he set it up as an independent entity um, run by a board of commissioners that requires um, still the approval of the Missouri State Supreme Court to be on the board of commissioners. And in his will, he established these really kind of strict guidelines around what it was. But yes, the city had to be able allowed to be accepting of the land because um, it wasn't part of what they could claim at that point. So let's go back to 1872. The park is founded. Uh, the Missouri Republican newspaper at the time heralded the arrival of the park with a headline that read, A New Lung to the City. What was the park like in 1872? Paint us a picture. The park in 1872, um, this is the most mind-blowing thing of all to me, Was uh, didn't have trees. <laughs> trees were planted, actually, a couple years before that. So there were trees. But if you think of now like a fresh subdivision with the little you know, saplings, with the little 
ties around them, hoping they make it through a winter. The the prairie before that, when Henry Shaw acquired it before it was developed, it was a treeless prairie. It was a it was for farming. So when we think now of the thousands of trees in Tower Grove Park, that's not what it looked like in 1872. It was uh, just on the planting end of that. But all of the pavilions that we think of today were there when the park opened. They were all completed and ready to go in 1872. The roads that go through the park are largely the same path that the roads were laid out, although um, they were intended for horse and carriages at the time, not for cars and everything else that blows through there now. Um, but it looked pretty much the same with the exception of you know 150 years of growth of trees. Um, it's It's been remarkably intact in terms of the the built environment and kind of how the natural world was constructed. You have photos in the book of carriages, of horses, uh, uh, the top hats. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, and you have a part in the book that, that describes how uh, the park helped generate business uh, around the perimeter of the park and, and, and these stories of beer and buckets being delivered to carriages. And, and as you said, people made day trips of this. And so it, it, it really seemed to uh, help energize this area of, of the city. Absolutely. People were super curious to see what was there um, because because Shaw had this um, representation of the garden to show what he could pull off, right? So people knew that it would be well done. They knew that he it was a passion project for him. So people did come and it was a day trip. You would have to get in a carriage in, uh, in the city of St. Louis. And yeah, the, immediately the park was an anchor for businesses the same way that it is now. But there, there were beer gardens uh, on different areas around the park and people would pull up and kind of stock their carriage for the afternoon. And you also have a passage in there about um, how the park was very different than it is today and that there could be no boisterous activities. So <laughs> sports were not allowed. Even kite flying was considered too boisterous. I, I, I found that funny. I know. You can't think of anything more sedate than kite flying now, right? <laughs> yeah. The Victorians, you know, they had a lot of ideas about proper decorum in every situation. And um, so, yes, they at the beginning, they encouraged only sort of gentle activities that they thought would edify the mind. You, you do sometimes wonder what would happen if they came across a kickball game today. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Henry Shaw was uh, not just the philanthropist behind this, but he was also very involved with the garden from the beginning. Uh, you, you write in the book that, that it's rumored that he may have planted 10,000 or 20,000 trees himself, um, but, but that he, he was very involved in, un, until his death. Another reason I think that we have the park we have today is because you're looking at an institution that was fully overseen by its founder, and he saw it all the way through. And then after the park opened, he lived uh, another many years after that. And so he, it, it was a vision that he had that he was able to carry through the entire way. After his death in 1889, uh, this marks uh, the coming of the Gurney family to being in charge. Uh, James Gurney had had worked at the park uh, with with Shaw, mm -hmm. um, but the Gurney family, uh, three generations of them, uh, became superintendents of the park. And James Gurney's arrival to being in charge, it struck me that he was very fond of the lily pads. Yes. James Gurney, so Gurney Sr., we have to call him because of the generations. James Gurney actually had worked with Henry Shaw for many years. He worked at the garden with um, Shaw. He was brought over from the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew in England. 
And he was kind of a water lily guy from the get-go. He was known for propagating all these species. He really was trying to to see push the push the boundaries of water lily life. <laughs> so um, after Shaw's death, when he became the first superintendent of the park, who wasn't Henry Shaw, he really um, wanted to display these water lilies, this fruit of all his work. So the lily ponds around the park became um, a destination, and it was a Victorian craze to have your photograph taken standing on the lily pads. And, um, and there was a bit of a trick to how this actually happened. Yes, because we, you, everyone now says, like, wouldn't you just immediately plunge right through? <laughs> so a lily pad is actually quite strong. They have a really um, intense sort of superstructure underneath of veins and everything, plant cells. But you have to distribute the weight. And so, yes, there were wooden planks strategically placed underneath um, so that people could look like they were standing on something and be a little assisted by that. You had to have a good trick photographer. <laughs> So in 1946, Bernice Gurney uh, becomes the last of the Gurneys to be superintendent of uh, Tower Grove Park. Uh, She served there for 33 years, the longest serving director of it. And it was rare for a woman to hold that position and and that kind of power in in that time. Uh, She she became, I think, one of my favorite characters in the book. How should the park be defined under her leadership? I think Bernice really took it seriously that the park needed to be an active partner in community life. Prior to that, the park had been a place of a respite of recreation, a sort of, you know, get away from it all and just go and and be. Um, She saw the park as having a role to play in building community spirit and having planned active programming and being a place sort of like a community living room. I mean, that's not a phrase that would have been used at that time. But she definitely, you know, she took over in World War II years in 1946 and had been closely working with her father for a few years before that. So she really stepped up the park's game in terms of being a a spot where you knew something would be going on that was planned, that was organized, and that you could be a part of. Henry Shaw had envisioned the park as uh, being, quote, for all classes. But as we know, in American society, uh, segregation and discrimination was rampant. Mm-hmm. In the 1940s, there there were minutes that noted that uh, black people were discouraged from using the park. Was that true all the way up until uh, the 1950s and 60s when it was operated as, as quote unquote, unsegregated or non-segregated? Like so many things in St. Louis, um, the segregation that existed in the park was not codified anywhere, but was informally understood by everyone. So the park never had written rules saying that um, black people couldn't use the different facilities or weren't welcome in the park. But just like the rest of the city around it, it was sort of understood that that was not a place where people would be welcome. So it is interesting to to watch. Um, the superintendent keeps keeps notes of every uh, month's activity in the park, and Miss Gurney's notes frequently refer to black patrons requesting access to um, the tennis courts, the pool facilities, the picnic grounds, and all of those things. And uh, her notes say things like they were tactfully discouraged, that sort of thing. Um, she does note later on in the 50s, I believe, that um, for the purposes of you know posterity, I want to say that the park is not operated in a segregated fashion. So I think the park changed with the times in a way that it had to. Um, but we saw the same conflicts in the park that we saw other places in St. Louis. Um, the waiting pool was another point of contention. And though there was not anywhere that I could find um, a situation in Tower Grove like happened at Fairground Park with a, a riot concerning who could use the waiting pool, um, there were definitely tensions that spilled over into every everyday life in the park. 
how did you grapple with Henry Shaw's legacy? He he owned enslaved people um, before the Civil War, before the Missouri Botanical Garden opened in 1860. But how how did you grapple with with his legacy when you were writing the book? You know, I mean, a lot of people immediately when I said I was working on this book starting a couple of years ago said, um, you know, did he use enslaved labor to build the park? What do you know about that? And as you just mentioned, by the time the garden was opened, he had um, gotten out of the slave-owning lifestyle. Shaw was super tight-lipped about opinions about anything like this. He had at one point early in his life written to his mother and said that he really despised this institution of slavery. And yet, like so many people before him in American history, has a conflicted legacy because ended up being the owner of people. I can't uh, have a conversation about Tower Grove Park and not talk about the trees. Will Ryan, the director of operations and special projects, is quoted in the book as saying, it's a museum of trees, essentially. I love that quote. What is it about the trees that makes it such a special place? So as someone who observes trees in the most passive sense, like I think I can identify two trees in real life, um, Uh I really took a look at this because people do. That's the first thing people talk about when they talk about Tower Grove Park. And when I rode around with Will Ryan looking at trees, he pointed out to me how there's such a diversity of um, size and different places in the canopy. And it's entirely set up so that different things will be coloring at different times. It's really a well-thought-out plan for the experience of someone visiting the park. I walk in and I just say, oh, it's so pretty today, you know, and Will Ryan walks around with his staff and says, okay, here's what we need to have happening at each level of the canopy. Um, The other thing about the trees that I think is really interesting is there's a lot of serious science going on in Tower Grove Park right now, because though Henry Shaw at the time he designed it was interested in, um, Henry Shaw thought trees were God among us. He really thought trees were the thing. But he also wanted to show off exotic things and things people in St. Louis would have never seen before. Now the park is trying really hard with their reforestation plan to look ahead 40 years and see what is it that's going to that's gonna exist in the tree world that will be able to survive whatever the climate is like 40 years from now, 50 years from now, 150 years from now. So they're doing a lot of experimentation now to see what they can do to leave a legacy behind for you know the next person who writes a book. The park has a master plan that was developed and released in uh, 2017. What does the future of the park look like? The future of the park is um, a constant balancing act because you have... On one hand, this very well-preserved, historic, Victorian, ornate park that was laid out for a certain kind of lifestyle, and also the competing demands of neighborhoods around it that, as we discussed, are far more populated than they were at the time that the park opened, of different kinds of ideas of what needs to be in the park. So the park will continue to have to, I think, deal with what people want to see versus what they think is their mandate to maintain. Um, They've already completed one of the major projects from the master plan, which is resurfacing a historic stream on the eastern end of the park. And one of the things that's important about that, I think there's environmental issues that are that are addressed by it. There's aesthetic issues that are brought to the fore by it. But also it was a project done in cooperation with representatives of the Osage Nation. And I feel like the park's future is going to be that. It's going to be cooperative, conversational progress that happens with all kinds of different people who want to see something happen in the park. The Osage have a historical ancestral tie to this land, and the park working with them to sort of continue to make it a relevant place for people who live there now, but also people who have that kind of history, I think is the way forward for the next um, century and a half. 
That's author Amanda Doyle talking about her new book, Tower Grove Park, Common Ground and Grateful Shade, since 1872. She spoke yesterday with producer Alex Hoyer. The park is celebrating its 150th anniversary this Sunday with a birthday bash. It's from 11 to 4 in the center of the park and will include kids' activities, live music, food trucks, and more. Amanda will also be there selling copies of the book. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.